Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Sober Bartender Podcast, the show where we recover from life. I'm Brandy Kelly. I will be your host today, and joining us is Dusty Burroughs. A little bit about Dusty. He's an experienced licensed professional counselor and licensed chemical dependency counselor and has a demonstrated history of achieving in the mental health care industry and specializes in residential addiction treatment, medication assisted treatment, harm reduction techniques, and recovery support services. He's skilled in conflict transformation, management, and marketing. He's a person-centered therapist, certified in cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT for short. He's a dedicated community service advocate and social services professional with a master's degree in rehabilitation counseling from the University of North Texas, where he also taught as an adjunct instructor in additional studies. His current pursuits and interests include psychedelic-assisted recovery and psychedelic integration therapies. Please help me welcome today, Dusty Burroughs. Dusty, welcome. Hi, thank you. Yes, thank you for being here. So, Dusty, I'm like nervous. Why am I nervous? Like we talked, nervous. we talked for like an hour the other week, and yeah. it was like it really wasn't even an hour, but it's just there's so there's so much. You have so much information, and you're doing so many things. Like I don't know where to start. Thank you. I'm just a big nerd. Is all I am. I'm a big recovery nerd. That's a good thing to be. Yeah. We can start with, let's start with recovery pathways. Like let's, let's talk about what that means to you. Like there are many different ways to go and you're forging some new. Yeah. I love to talk about this because my initial introduction to recovery was just sobriety through 12 step programs, specifically AA. I used to go to AA meetings with my grandmother who was in long-term recovery when I was like eight and nine years old. And it was always such a good experience for me because everybody was really nice. I just remember smoke-filled rooms back in those days. This was uh, late 70s, early 80s. Um, lots of potluck dinners and everybody seemed to be in a really good mood and they were really sweet. And that was my grandma's life at the time. And that's all I knew, right? So like I'd memorized the steps by the time I was like 10 years old because I'd sit in the meetings most oftentimes. It wasn't until later on that they had a little separate room for the kids to play in. Um, and then I also went to uh, Alateen as a youth. Uh, Alateen, for those who don't know, is for uh, children or teenagers who uh, grow up in families with uh, alcoholism, you know, mom or dad or both. So I went to camp. And so that was always a really good experience there too. I just remember a lot of be a lot of older cute chicks there. Um, so it's <laughs> fond memories. I think it was out at Grapevine Lake. And so then as I got older, and this has a lot to do with my programming too. That's all I knew. And I, my father, you'll notice I don't usually use the term alcoholic or addict, but for the sake of this conversation, I will. Uh, my dad was an alcoholic. Uh, my mom actually identified as an alcoholic for a short time, and then she realized that uh, she actually had some other issues that were manifesting themselves in unhealthy drinking. She really didn't. She wouldn't have qualified by the terms in the rooms, basically. But everybody kind of told me, hey, you come from this long line of alcoholics, so you're going to be one. 
Uh, you come from a long line of drug addicts, so you're probably going to be one if you ever take a drink or if you ever use a substance. So um, I manifested that pretty quickly around 12 years old. Um, and I found myself in treatment at 13 and 15 and a couple other times in life, multiple detoxes and whatnot. But when I entered recovery because of it becoming a life or death situation for me at 39, all I knew was 12-step recovery. And uh, and so I found a group out on Padre Island that you might be familiar with called Sunset 7. Sunset 7 was walking distance, uh, which was good because I didn't really need to be driving too much back then. I didn't even, I wasn't even abstinent from alcohol and drugs when I entered recovery, which is another topic that I like to discuss that recovery can start before abstinence. So uh, I would leave my bar tab open down at Burger Co. and go to a meeting at Sunset 7 and then go back and keep drinking. I knew I wanted to make some changes, but I wasn't ready for abstinence yet. Eventually I would be. So uh, it wasn't until I got into college after entering recovery, I went back to school to become a counselor because I really like talking about feelings and my treatment center experiences. And I started learning that there was more than one way to get recovery. There was more than one way to maintain sobriety. Um, there was a, so there was some different things I hadn't been exposed to, which are multiple pathways. So I started learning about smart recovery. I started learning about celebrate recovery. I started learning about refuge recovery or recovery dharma. I started learning that recovery pathways didn't always require meetings, that you could find a pathway to your recovery with health and fitness and nutrition and spirituality and meditation and mindfulness. And here was a little nugget. The more pathways that you engage in, the better your chances of long-term recovery. And this was, again, based on research, not just somebody's opinion or not just one book. And I really like that idea. And as you might imagine, having only one perspective on recovery for so many years, um, I was a little reluctant to accept other pathways. But eventually, being willing to take a look at it and not have contempt before investigation, I started to not only buy into the multiple pathways perspective, but I actually began to engage in it. And then along comes harm reduction, and that blew my mind. Oh, my God, you're going to give people drugs in order to get off drugs, right? I was a little skeptical of that as well. Um, but then being the guy that I am, always being willing to learn, uh, especially about things that I don't necessarily agree with, I dove right into the idea of uh, exploring that. And I think we talked about this the other day. Either one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to learn about some pathway or some theory um, or some metho methodology, and you're going to go, nope, don't like it. It's not going to work. And so it makes you more steadfast in your belief. Or you can go, well, you know what? I have a lot to learn. 99% of the time, I came to the conclusion that I have a lot more to learn, and I really don't know shit. So continue to learn and continue to broaden my perspective on recovery, what sobriety even means, and these different pathways to recovery. So um, I take every opportunity that I can get to kind of share my story and evolution on the on my my perception change because it's been uh, slow and gradual. 
Um, I was very, I am, I continue to be pessimistic at times and, uh, I definitely am skeptical. Um, so my evolution has taken years. A lot of pe- my friends have only known me a year or two. We were, I was at a recovery Dharma retreat over the week, retreat over the weekend. And when I told them I used to be very closed minded, um, I didn't believe in harm reduction or medication assisted recovery. They were like, really? Well, I've always thought you always were like this. I was like, no, I wasn't. Um, I, I did think it was dangerous and reckless. Um, but through that, that same investigation and uh, that I mentioned and by actively managing an OBOT program, uh, becoming an advocate in harm reduction and helping people seek recovery. Through what some might say is alternative methods, I realize that these work and they're saving people's lives because they can never reach the point of abstinence if they're dead. And the fact of the matter is there's a lot of people that don't want to be abstinent and they need and deserve help as well. So when you have meetings that are out there for people that are still actively using, I love that because... As I mentioned before, my recovery began before I became abstinent, and it it continues long after I don't practice specifically an abstinent-based recovery, but more of a harm reduction approach. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to have a lifelong 12-step education. Like, you started as a kid, and, uh, you know, you like you said, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. Like you almost just, it was ingrained in you that you were going to do this. So by all natural causes, of course you did. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea, like I recently just heard about harm reduction and in my, in my mind, it's terrifying. Like the idea of like anything but abstinence was terrifying. And then the more that I investigate and the more, you know, my sponsor has called me the most willing person she's ever worked with, but I'm willing to see more than just what I know. And I'm like, this makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like this makes sense because there are people falling through the cracks. Like we're losing people left and right because one thing doesn't work for them. And we're like, well, maybe someday he'll be willing. Yeah. But more than likely he might be dead. Yeah. I just got a text this morning. Uh, about somebody who died. Unfortunately, I get a lot of texts like that. So we want to help people. We want to meet them where they're at. I don't want to meet them where they're at if they're in the grave, right? It's too late. And we have all these different pathways and we have all these treatment centers and we have all these medications, but we're killing more people than ever with stigma. Right. Yeah. And nobody, no one person or no one pathway is responsible for that, but we can definitely do better. And that's yes. what I try to kind of scream from the mountaintops, you know, love and acceptance and meeting people where they're at is going to get you a lot farther than tough love, you know? Yeah. And that's that individualized treatment, right? Not putting every single person into a one size fits all box and go, this is what worked for these people. So this has to work for you. Yeah. Yeah. Trauma is a big piece to that. Right. Um, that's why certain things don't work for certain people. Right. You know, if you um, if you walk into a room and, you know, you're a person of color and there's a bunch of old white guys there, that might not be the room for you. Doesn't mean those guys are doing anything wrong, but maybe something needs to cater to you. Maybe if you're a woman um, who's experienced sexual exploitation and abuse and you walk into a room that's predominantly male, that might not be the room for you and vice versa, right? 
So um, another, you know, if you're gay or trans, right, you walk into a room and you don't feel welcomed or accepted or at the, the worst case scenario, you're shunned or discriminated against. Do you think that's going to play into your your need and your desire to get sober and a recovery? No. So we need to create um, accepting and open spaces for people to come and find recovery, right? This doesn't mean that everybody has to look like you or everybody has to have your same drug of choice or everybody has to be gay or black. No, but we want to create environments that are accepting, right, and diverse and culturally aware, um, whether it be age or gender or sexual orientation. There's so many um, different things that play into our experience as human beings and are a big part of what can open closed doors or create some distance um, or disconnect when people looking to enter recovery. Because sometimes that window can be very small and that person can be very, very fragile. And we hate to run people off uh, with any type of stigma, whether it be racial or cultural or otherwise. Yeah. And I, I want to go back to what you said about trauma playing a big part, because not that we're disputing one way or another, but I feel like in certain pathways, trauma isn't necessarily addressed. And I feel like trauma is the cause of much of our suffering that we're trying to drown out. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, we talk about in 12-step recovery, and I do want to say that I've always had a positive experience in my my experience with 12-step recovery, whether it be AA or NA. So I don't have any experience that I can share with you where anybody treated me poorly, right? So I want to preface that, that I'm, I believe AA and NA and other 12-step recovery uh, modalities have had the spotlight. <laughs> so it's not that I want to shun or throw shade on them, but I want to open the door to other things as well. And so there's no animosity on my part from my personal experiences but I'm just saying, it's time to add some channels, right? We used to have four, five, eight, 11, and 13, right? Now we have hundreds of channels. I want recovery to look the same way. It's not a black and white TV with five channels anymore. We got cable, satellite, and internet now <laughs> when it comes to recovery. So plug into what channel works for you. So um, back to the trauma piece. Working the 12 steps, uh, you know, I like to refer to it. I, you know, I don't know if anybody else does, but it's a technology for life, right? So whether you are in recovery from alcohol or drug addiction, those or or neither, right? Maybe you are married to somebody or have somebody in your family um, that had a substance use disorder, or maybe you just picked up that book out of curiosity and want to work those steps. They're going to benefit you in some way. So it's a kind of a technology for living, and I and I like that because although we don't think about that as technology in 2023. And 1939, it damn sure was. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Did I say 33 or 39? You said 39. Okay, good. So, yeah. So, in that piece, when we're working through those steps, we're doing our fourth and fifth step, right? Our sponsor, no matter how wonderful they are, might not be equipped to help us work through uh, complex trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder, Right. Um, they're there to help you work through those steps and support you in that process. But there's some things that some of us have experienced that not everybody is equipped to help us through. Right. One of my first sponsors 
he didn't live the kind of life I did. And he pawned me off real quick because he wasn't equipped to help me work through some of the things I needed to work through. It wasn't his fault. Um, he probably could have done a better job if he would have believed in himself, but uh, he wasn't up for the task. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of a lot anyways. <laughs> but uh, man, it's those types of things, right? You know, working with with uh, sex abuse and uh, rape and molestation and PTSD from military and, and all the other things that we've experienced as people in recovery from addiction, because that shame and trauma might have played a big part in us developing the addiction. And then once we get into our addiction, we're re-traumatized through exploitation and our own really unhealthy choices. So it just adds fuel to that fire and more shame on top of a mountain of shame that we probably already possess. So finding the right people to help navigate us through that, you know, one of those pathways being finding a mental health professional, right? is a big piece to that. So if you can incorporate a spiritual program or, 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 you know, a mental health program, a nutrition program, you know, where we hit all the different domains uh, of our existence, right? Look at it from a holistic approach. Um, I think I see the most benefit for that. So are these things being like, are the multiple pathways being brought to people? Like how, how, how are they being reached? Like how are people that are new, like suffering and at that point of life or death? That's a great question. It's not happening enough um, because when people walk into my office where I work here in um, local mental health authority and it's state funded, people are coming in from uh, probation, parole, CPS, living in the streets, and they come here and uh, they don't know anything about multiple pathways. All they know is, you know, my probation officer told me I had to make meetings or CPS told me I had to make meetings, AA or NA. And that's usually all they know about. So uh, if I, they come in and they uh, identify as Christian people and they pray and they, they want to go to church, I, you know, introduce them to celebrate recovery. And they're like, wow, I didn't know that existed. So I can, you know, feed my Christ-based spirituality with the, my addiction program. Uh, people that are a little more laid back into the meditation scene, I let them know about my preferred pathway, which is recovery dharma or refuge recovery. So where we don't identify as alcoholic or addict, we still go to meetings. Um, we There's a big meditation piece, and it's a program of renunciation and empowerment. And that's really attractive to some people, right? It's a lot of kind of punk rockers, hippy-dippy folks, meditators. So it's a very eclectic bunch. Um, and so some people... Um, it's, it's a, it's a gentle approach in some ways because it's very accepting. Nobody's telling you what you have to do. Some people that enter that pathway are practicing harm reduction, whether it be medication assisted treatment, whether they still smoke weed, but they're not doing, you know, meth or alcohol or heroin, or maybe they're abstinent, but they're exploring a hallucinogenic approach, you know, with, uh, that type of, uh, recovery pathway. So, um, psychedelic recovery is, is becoming a much more popular thing as well. So, uh, certain pathways are going to be a little bit more open to that. And then, of course, we have smart recovery. So somebody who doesn't have any interest in working a spiritual program because maybe they're atheist or agnostic and they just want to keep it. Just give me the science, right? It's the only evidence based 
recovery pathway out there because it utilizes REBT, which is uh, um, rational emotive behavioral therapy, which is a form of cognitive behavioral therapy. And then that modality, um, it's usually a very small group and they use different tools that they put in the toolbox and the crosstalking is encouraged. It's almost like sitting down with a small group of friends and hashing out some things and challenging each other on behaviors and thought processes and going, okay, how can we take something, a thought process that's irrational, not based on any logic, and, and you're reacting and behaving based on this thought process, rethink that while we're validating our feelings and change this thought process into something that's healthy and you're not being reactive um, you're not going out to use based on these irrational thoughts and these narratives and stories that you're creating. And so having some other folks help you navigate that, usually there's going to be a better outcome because 99% of our problems start between our ears, mm-hmm. right? But then they go out to our hands, which picks up drinks and needles or punch walls or people or drive recklessly. There's so many things that once they leave here and they go to here, it can cause us some problems. So the key is catching them way back at what's called like the activating event, you know, whether Mm -hmm. somebody breaks up with you, a boss pisses us off, um, somebody pulls out in front of you, uh, somebody passes away, anything can be an activating event. Then we create this, have these feelings, we create these stories, and then we react and behave. So catching that way back, at the beginning where we get in our feelings about something and processing that before we create the negative, unrealistic, unhealthy, and sometimes very irrational stories that lead us to behave a certain way. So, yeah, that makes so much sense. And I, I've been, as I've been doing research lately and learning about alcohol, alcohol, what is it? Alcohol use disorder. Yes. And it really makes you question like alcohol was my coping mechanism. Right. And so there are all these things. And so I abused alcohol. Mm-hmm. And so then I don't know if you even want to begin to de- delve into this question, but, <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it raises the question of, am I an alcoholic and am I forever going to be an alcoholic or am I a person who had you know, thoughts and feelings and then acted on them in a way that was familiar to me, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great question and something we can delve into really quick. When it comes to alcohol use disorder, you can have an alcohol use disorder, mild, uh, moderate or severe, and you can have that in remission. The term alcoholic isn't really based in science, right? It's more of something that uh, has been around for so long, even Professionals sometimes still use it. I stick to alcohol use disorder or when people, uh, they say I'm not an alcoholic and I don't have an addiction to alcohol. We have very specific criteria for alcohol use disorder. So if it's a non-treatment kind of environment, like they're just coming to counseling, I'll ask them, well, do you have an unhealthy relationship with alcohol? And sometimes they're like, yeah, I can go with that. So just like if you had an unhealthy relationship with a person, let's see how we can change your relationship. So just because you remove alcohol or cocaine, that was your coping mechanism. That was your way to soothe your pain, your trauma, right? So if you remove this thing that helped me soothe and cope with my pain, 
You don't automatically get health and coping skills, right? You have to seek and develop those. Otherwise, you're going to maybe develop some other, what I like to call patterns of avoidance. So if I stop drinking and I stop using cocaine, maybe I'll go out and chase women more, or maybe I'll go out and gamble, or maybe I'll uh, work more. I'll do anything I can to avoid the way I feel. So what I've basically done is I've shifted my uh, pattern of avoiding my feelings, or I've shifted um, the ways that I want to soothe my pain. Uh, to kind of steal from Gabor Mate, the Hungarian doctor and leading trauma kind of guru on the planet, according to some, you know, babies learn to soothe and we get older, we learn to soothe using drugs and alcohol. If we stop using drugs and alcohol, we find other ways to soothe our pain. Are they going to be healthy or are they not going to be healthy? So they don't, by omission of one pattern of avoidance, you don't just get to develop another one. You have to, what uh, we can refer to as doing the work. We got to go out there and seek healing and seek education and seek ways um, to cope with the normal everyday bullshit we have to endure, right? Yeah. Um, not to mention the severe bullshit we have to endure, you know, breakups and and job losses. And then some of the more tragic things like losing people that we care about or dealing with the wreckage of our past, as we call it. Sometimes that's a really tough thing to look at. Talk about shame inducing, right? You start to look back at all the pain you've caused, not only to other people that you care about, but to yourself. Just taking a look at that is enough to make you run for the hills and go back to the bottle, right? Um, that's why so many people dip out at step three, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I got to write this shit down. Now? I can do the first three steps from a bar stool or from a from a uh, a couch, but now I got to put pen to paper and really get down to business. And and that's a very painful thing to look at. Not only what we've done, but how people have wronged us too. That's a really difficult thing to look at. Going back into the trauma piece again. So um, there are people. I am one of those people and I'm really careful with this because I don't want to influence anybody in a way that they go, Oh, well, you know, uh, I'm not, I don't have a substance use disorder anymore. I can go out and drink casually. Some people cannot and they never will be able to. Um, there's people in my life. If they picked up a drink or a drug within about 72 hours, they were wrecking cars, getting in fights, going to jail, ending up in detox or mental hospital or all of the above in 72 hours. Those are the type of folks that might never, ever be able to moderate. All right. Um, now, there are people that have had long periods of abstinence and done a lot of work on themselves and and have been able to uh, drink moderately or socially. There's a book out there called The Abstinence Myth uh, by Dr. Jaffe. He shares his own personal story about his addiction and uh, and finding pathways to recovery and learning that some of the recovery myths that he was subjected to just weren't true for him. And it's a really powerful uh, um, way to look at things. There's a lot of programming that goes on in recovery. And so I won't like uh, demonize any one particular pathway to doing that because this happens from doctors. This happens from counselors. This happens from other people in recovery. You know, if you go out and drink socially, after you're labeled an alcoholic and your drug of choice was meth, it's just no time. You know, you're going to go out and have some beers. 
You're going to have 18, and before you know it, you're going to be shooting meth up in your Toyota. That isn't necessarily true for a lot of us, right? Some people never go back to their DOC. And then, of course, people go, well, if you're able to maintain uh, long periods of abstinence, why would you ever want to go back to even playing with fire? Well, that's an absolutely great question. Why would you? So uh, some people don't ever have the intention of staying abstinent for the rest of their life. And those are some of the people that are going to have to navigate this, right? Um, if they have that intention, well, good for them. You know, that's, I think that would be ideal for everybody, but not everybody goes into recovery for the lifelong commitment. So then they have to go, okay, well, I plan on going back out in a few years, right? I'm committed to this long. How am I going to navigate that? What do I need to do between now and then? So do I tell them there's no hope for you or do I go, okay, well, let's, let's, I'm going to work with you and see how you're going to do that. And if it, you crash and burn, you crash and burn, but uh, they're going to do it anyway. So we're going to try to do the best we can to help them navigate that. Some people are able to do it successfully and some people aren't. Um, but abstinence-based recovery doesn't have a monopoly on dead people and neither does harm reduction or any other pathway recovery. No matter what pathway to recovery there is, there are graves um, from people that have tried that pathway. So there's no perfect pathway. Otherwise, I think we would all choose that, wouldn't we? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if they answered your question or not. It's a Nobody really was great. It was thing. Um, you know, it just goes to the harm reduction piece. You know, there's people out there that are living on the streets and all they have to cope with life is is drugs or alcohol. And if you, the prospect of ever taking that away from them is just not going to happen for some. So do we want to still help them? Do we want to still give them services and support them and, uh, and reduce that harm through, uh, drug testing and HIV, STI testing, uh, safe injection sites, safe supply, just to name a few things, right? Because not only does it help reduce the harm that they're um, inflicting on themselves, but because of these choices that they're making, this can have a widespread effect on our community when it comes to HIV, you know, hep C, um, all sorts of different things, right? Because just because you're not a drug user doesn't mean you won't encounter a drug user, and it doesn't always mean you're going to know. I've worked with countless people, men and women, who find out later that they were sleeping with somebody that had a, um, you know, opioid use disorder, methamphetamine use disorder that was uh, using needles, and they come up with Hep C or HIV or other other nasty things you don't want to end up with. So just because you're not a drug user, this still should concern you, right? Mm -hmm. To keep drug users safe because they're people too, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So an, another thing, like in addition to the harm reduction, like that's something, like I said, that I've just recently been just reading about, you know, there's tons of articles out there. I know um, you've provided access to tons of articles and then people that I've met, once my mind opened up to the concept, it was like all these different people just started showing up in my world. And I think that that's you know, absolutely manifested also. It was like, once I was ready to see it, there it was. So I'm really, I'm thankful for that. But so you also talk about 
the psychedelic assisted recovery and the stigma around that. Mm -hmm. Well, that's one of the things that I really enjoyed doing. I recently started doing psychedelic integration work with people uh, specifically um, who are using ketamine uh, for alcohol use disorder and other addiction use disorders, as well as post-traumatic stress disorder and treatment resistant uh, depression some anxiety stuff. So there's a lot of stuff out there that ketamine is helpful for. I work with a company called Neuroglow out of uh, McKinney and Flower Mound, and that's intravenous uh, ketamine. Um, they do an intravenous or intramuscular, and uh, you go into a, a room. It's 45-minute sessions. You're monitored your heart rate, your blood pressure by a nurse practitioner, and it's a really safe and private um, environment. I've gone through the six sessions myself, the life changer for me. I went to um, get some healing from post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, minimize and reduce my hypervigilance and a lot of other really kind of unhealthy things that I was experiencing mentally. And it was a game changer for me. I did that back in November. I had already been kind of exploring the knowledge and the research on these things so ketamine's FDA approved. A lot of stigma. People are like, well, that's a horse tranquilizer. That's a club drug. It actually ha is used in veterinary medicine as well as for humans for anesthesia purposes. If you've had surgery, it's a good chance that ketamine was involved. I had actually abused ketamine as a youth back in my rave days. But when you're utilizing a medicine under the care of a doctor, nurse practitioner in a controlled environment for therapeutic or spiritual uses, it is different. So intent when using certain medicines, especially plant medicines, um, ketamine is not a plant medicine, but we'll get into the plant medicine piece. It's, it's different than what you call drug abuse, which I don't use much, or drug misuse uh, was my preferred term. And so, and it's not just the opinion of Dusty, you know, it's the, based on research, right? There's over 300 universities all across the globe doing research on LSD, MDMA, psilocybin, peyote, all of these different things. You know, we just got decriminalized for psychedelics in Colorado, Oregon, uh, parts of Michigan, uh, parts of, I think, Hawaii just passed something, and then the entire country of Australia. So the game is going to change for mental health and addiction recovery. Just the research based on alcohol use disorder and the use of ketamine infusions is amazing. Where people who are having difficulty maintaining any abstinence are able to um, incur long periods of abstinence after treatments from ketamine. And then you talk about people that can uh, afford to go try ayahuasca and things like that, where they never touch a drug again. So uh, don't take my word for it. Read the research. There's a lot of wonderful things on LinkedIn. We have this worldwide web. I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but there's a lot of great information <laughs> out there on it. And just keep an open mind. And as I mentioned before, you're either going to go, oh, no, not feeling it. Um, it's very fear inducing, even for the open minded person, because they're like, what if I... What if I lose it, you know, but it, psychedelic recovery is not for everybody. There are people that are higher at risk. Um, if you've had experiences with psychosis, you have certain medical issues, um, schizophrenia runs in your family, you might want to stay away from it. You know, same thing with high potency THC. A lot of people use plant medicines like THC to get off the harder drugs 
and um, it's able to help them with that. But plant medicines and psychedelics don't come without risks, right? But antidepressants, anti-anxiety medicines, antipsychotics, mood stabilizers, do you think those come without risks too, right? So you have to make an informed decision on what works for you, what works for people that you're working with, what pe- works for people that you're advocating for. You know, there's somebody like my mom, you know, I think she would be, she'd be great with psychedelic stuff because she's an old hippie, right? But uh, for my client that deals with bipolar, uh, depression, um, with psychosis and stuff like that, probably wouldn't recommend they explore that because it could get a little uh, wonky for them. So um, check it out. It's it's really, really neat. I actually started a Facebook group for the purpose of educating the layperson as well as the professional um, on some of the things that are being explored out there legally in the legislature. Um, there's actually a bipartisan group working to make ketamine and other psychedelics available for veterans through the VA, right? You have people like Marcus Capone, who's uh, working with the, the Republican side of things, and he's uh, CEO and founder of Terramind, and there's a great documentary about his journey with psychedelics. Aaron Rodgers, everybody knows Aaron Rodgers, his exploration of ayahuasca. So um, there's a lot of people out there, you know, Prince Harry, a lot of people out there willing to share their stories and how it's changed their lives, whether from trauma or whether from uh, certain types of addiction disorders. So uh, I'm really excited about it. I think it's going to change the face of the way we treat humans and their addictions over the next few years. You know, um, MDMA should be finalized, hopefully, and approved in the next year or so. Uh, MAPS, uh, the multi, uh, multi, multiple, multiple, multi, multidisciplinary <laughs> association for psychedelic. God, I'm drawing a blank. This is still MAPS, okay? Yeah. Uh, founded by Rick Doblin. They've been in charge of the the research and the development um, for getting MDMA pushed through. Um, they've jumped through all the hoops. It's taken many, many, many years. And just think of the uh, the types of uh, assistance they're going to be able to provide for couples, um, for PTSD, for addiction. And that's right on the other side of things. So just think when that hits, trying to explain to people that you're treating folks with MDMA, you know, uh, ecstasy, really, you know, wasn't that the club drug? Absolutely was. So um, just like any other drug, you know, fentanyl was as was developed decades and decades ago, and it changed the face of surgery. But just like with anything else, it can be um, bastardized and exploited and made uh, from made by bad people to do bad things. So just be safe and be informed and, and kind of keep your eyes open for how that's going to change the face of recovery and addiction treatment. Yeah. I will tell you when I, uh, when I initially was discharged from uh, detox, went to detox in Vegas back in 2019. And um, I was given so many prescriptions. Like I didn't take any pills. I just like drank a ton of vodka and did a bunch of blow like every single day. And they gave me, like Xanax and they gave me uh Seroquel. They gave me like these things for bipolar, which I do not have as far as I know, but I just thought it was so interesting that, you know, you, they'll give you all of these pharmaceuticals. And now that, you know, this plant medicine is emerging, 
you know, people have this preconceived notion that contempt prior to investigation. Um, but I feel like it's going to be really useful. And I know the healing abilities. And like you said, I feel like the intent is, is the important part. Cause if you're just going to, you know, take a trip and, and get blasted, that's one thing. But if you're going with the intention of, of healing and nurturing and, um, I feel like that is, it is the big difference maker. Yeah. I've gotten some really great feedback from, from, uh, people exploring psilocybin specifically because it's pretty easy to get. Um, and then people accessing the ketamine treatment here locally that I get to work with. Um, and, and the proof is in the pudding when you're hearing the feedback and it's changing people's lives. It's hard to doubt that, you know, you're seeing it with your own eyes and having experienced this myself through my own explorations. Um, I know what it's done for my life. So I've got to ask, like, what is the one thing? I mean, there are many things, but what is the one thing that you want people who are struggling with substances to know? That there's a lot of ways to get healthy and to recover from your addiction. Your addiction is just one piece of many things that are hurting you. So if you can take a break and be abstinent for a while, I highly recommend that. If you don't want to commit the rest of your life, that's on you. If you do, fantastic. You know, I think it's important to stay present and take your recovery one day at a time, as they say. But you have a lot to do with each day in recovery, right? It's your responsibility to heal. It's your responsibility to seek out this new life. It's your responsibility to find community. That is the one thing that I think is a must for recovery is we do not recover alone. Find your people, find your tribe, and find your community. They're out there. It doesn't matter how weird you think you are or how extra you think you are, because you might be, and that's cool. Fly your flag. But there's other people out there like you. And even if they're not like you, maybe they like you, you know? Um, maybe you can bring something special to their life. So I was talking about this on Sunday after I left the retreat. We have a very uh, diverse group of people, and we're all very different. You have something uniquely special about you that you have to offer the community that you find. So it's not just about me and this is what I need and how can people help me and love me back um, to, to health, right? You get the opportunity to be that person for somebody else. And you know how much confidence that builds? You know how much value that gives you? Because when we enter recovery, oftentimes we're beaten down. We feel like we're worthless, right? We feel like we have no value or nothing to offer to ourselves, to our family, to anybody else on this planet. And all of a sudden you realize that, oh, wait, I do have something special to offer. I am specifically engineered to be me and nobody's like me. And to be able to offer what's just you to other people and support is amazing, right? Yeah. Get you up every day and it can make you really feel uh, like life is worth living. And we need to tap into that. So community, number one, um, having some time of abstinence, whether you're choosing that forever or not, it's important. You can't really do the work that needs to be done if you're still, you know, blitzed every day, right? Take some time off from using Take some time alone to be with your conscious and rational and sober thoughts, right? Spend some time with you because 
you have to get to know you, figure yourself out again, heal yourself, forgive yourself and love yourself. Then you're going to be able to do that for other people, right? Sometimes we put ourselves on the back burner because they say, well, you've been selfish your whole life. You've been selfish all through your addiction. That might be true. It very well is true. But there's a, a level of selfishness, not in the traditional sense, that we really have to focus on us, right? And if you can start to be kind to yourself and love yourself, you're going to start to heal. Stop talking to yourself like you're a scumbag. Like, if think about that. All the thoughts that you tell yourself in a day, if somebody else talked to you like that, you wouldn't be friends with them. But here you look in the mirror and you talk to yourself all day like this. Catch yourself. Stop doing that. And that's something that's going to be important to work with a therapist or a mentor on to really catch yourself doing that. Um, Because we can keep ourselves sick even if we're surrounded by healthy people. Because, mm-hmm. again, in between our ears scenario, right? Um, practicing these multiple pathways, choosing what works for you, right? And then some really basic stuff that I, I keep seeing this over and over again. I have so many people that I love that are in long-term recovery, and they've been, been abstinent for five years, 10 years. They don't take care of their health right? You've literally saved your life, but now you're not taking care of your nutrition, right? Whether it's you're not eating enough or you're eating too much, or you're not getting exercise, you're putting, you know, trash into your body. So you stop putting crack and heroin in, but now it's processed food all day, you know, fast food all day. Start treating this body of yours like it has some worth, right? You want to stick around as long as you can to enjoy this new life that you've created, right? But it goes back to patterns of avoidance. So if I stop using alcohol and cocaine every day, but I now eat McDonald's, Taco Bell, and Jack in the Box every day, right? That is soothing. That's another addiction, right? So food addiction, process addictions, they will sneak up on you when you become abstinent from chemicals, right? And it's dangerous because... With food addiction and sex addiction and things like that, like we have to eat. If we're in a relationship, sex is generally going to be a part of that, hopefully a good and healthy part. Um, so if we start uh, mismanaging some of the things that we have to do from day to day, they can become as unhealthy as our drugs and alcohol and potentially kill us. So treat your body right. Go to the doctor and, and see if there's anything wrong with you from your long-term addiction. Uh, that was one of the first things I did when I entered recovery. I went to the doctor, had my blood test checked. I started taking care of my body again, and then eventually got into exercise and fitness, which was a game changer for my recovery. So that's another piece there. Yeah, getting enough sleep, drinking enough water. These are basic necessities of life. Yes. But we just go, everything's going to be cool because I'm not banging heroin anymore. No, it's not true. You know, you have to heal your body from the... The, the mess that you put it through. Yeah, that <laughs> I think was that's a big piece that's missed. Yeah, that was my big, my big, big delusion was like, I just, I just drink too much. I was full blown, like physically addicted to alcohol. So I thought just taking out this piece and everything's good. No, you're absolutely right. Like I needed to take care of my body and my mind because my mind was still there. Like the thing that made mm-hmm. me want to drink like that was still actively working. So I'm glad you brought attention to that because it it's still, you know, it's a little over two years and it's I'm just getting started. 
Mm-hmm. Just figuring things out. I'm still just figuring things out. It seems like there's always something new to learn. Uh, it's a good time to be in recovery right now. It's becoming even trendy. That could be a good thing. It could be a weird thing. I don't know. But sobriety, whether it be people who are sober curious, right? That's great, right? They're just going, oh, I want to see what being, I want to see what I feel like if I don't use. I want to see what I feel like if I don't drink. And some of them are sticking with it. Some people are taking, you know, like, what are the dry January type stuff where they go, okay, I want to, I'm going to stop binge drinking for a while because I know it's a good idea. Some people are going sober who never had a substance use disorder because they want to get healthy and think clearly because let, let me, let me tell you this. Whatever you're good at, you're going to be better at if you're not using, whether it's in business, whether you're developing a business, whether you have a career, whether it's fitness, whatever it is, there's something about not putting poison in your body and in your mind that makes you a whole lot better at what natural gifts you already have. And if you don't know what your natural gifts are, like myself, you'll start, it'll start to become clear to you as your head clears. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I, Grew up at 40 years old. I had no idea. I'm like, oh, you know, counseling sounds fun. I'll do that. Just because I'd been to rehab so many times, I liked talking about my feelings. But what I learned through that process is I do have some gifts. And you'll realize that hopefully as as you're in a recovery. I also wanted to address something too before I forget and we run out of time is um, the different Facebook groups, right? So when I entered recovery, I started Sobar which is short for sober bartender. I was a bartender at the time. And uh, a lot of people are like, well, you can't bartend and, 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 uh, and be sober. I'm like, well, I am, you know, um, at the time I really didn't have too much trouble at all. Um, not drinking. I was like working was work, right? I was before I was drinking before work, during work and after work. And I, I didn't have any problems with it. So it doesn't matter what your occupation is. You can still be in recovery and you can still maintain sobriety if that's what a priority is for you. Is it going to be probably more challenging? Absolutely. But I know uh, chefs, I know, you know, front of the house, back of the house. I know dancers who, you know, who work in the uh, where they have to take their clothes off and dance who are sober and in recovery, but they have to bring home the, the bacon, so to speak. So whatever you have to do to pay your bills as long as you have your recovery as your priority, anything's possible. Now, in um, recovery dharma, we have one of the tenets of the Eightfold Path. It's called wise occupation. So I do suggest that take a look at your occupation. Are you causing harm to yourself or causing harm to other people in your occupation? And if so, maybe take a look at transitioning out of that one day. It doesn't mean you have to quit your job tomorrow, you know. Doesn't mean you're a horrible human being, but uh, it means that you might be causing suffering to yourself or another human being through your through your occupation. Take a look at that. How can you navigate that differently? So, but for me, bartending and being in recovery and starting sober was amazing. It kind of catapulted me into advocacy and connecting with people globally. Um, so that's why I really want to applaud you. Uh, for starting the Sober Bartender podcast, because there's literally tens of thousands of us out there who are seeking recovery or in long-term recovery, who are new to recovery, or who are just willing to advocate for those of us on this path 
So I have a lot of friends that are still active users, but they are really excited to support me and my friends in any way that, that I ask them to, you know, advocates are a big part of what we do. People don't have to share the same challenges and difficulties with, like, you know, I'm a big advocate for lots of different communities and I'm not part of those communities, but I advocate for them. Right. So you can be that advocate too. If you're listening to this, I've never struggled with alcohol or drugs, right? I've never had mental health challenges. That's all right. You can support those of us who do advocacy can give you the same fulfillment and purpose that recovery does. Yes. Yeah, I think it's so, I had never heard of a sober bartender community until I got to Texas. And I was like, where has this been all my life? Because I didn't know of any, you know, industry people. I didn't know that anyone in the industry could not drink. And I also knew that that there was maybe two or three people and they were super lame. Lame. Like in my alcohol you know in my in my drunken mind I was like don't want that but you know getting to know people now that are like super rad and they're like they're like me and I want to be around them and I want to be like them and they like me and they think I'm the coolest and I'm like this is an amazing thing and the, the community is so important like not isolating and seeing that there's more to life than just what's immediately in front of you and that it's totally possible you know, on that note, too, we're talking about that particular community, but whatever you're into, you know, um, I know like when it started a women's group down on the island, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the sober bartender thing. But I've also seen other uh, demographics that start their own recovery pathway, right? So if you're African-American, if you're gay, if you're into like... Dungeons and Dragons, Star Wars, it doesn't matter. Start a recovery community based on like-minded people that are into the same stuff you are. So you can walk into a room or you can get on this internet space and be with your people, right? So I love that. And that, that, that's kind of what got me to start Sobar. I was looking for recovery Dharma in uh, DFW and I couldn't really find a group. I did find a group of like one person was there that I showed up and two people were there. I'm like, well, I, I know a lot of people. So me and a couple of ladies um, started the recovery Dharma Plano group. And I oh, mean, it's nothing for 25, 35 people to show up to a meeting. Um, and we're almost two years in. So if you can't find what you're looking for, you can start it yourself, right? You can start. All it takes is two or three people sitting around a table you don't have a space, go to a park, go to a restaurant, wherever you want to. And I will tell you this, you reach out to the community. They are very supportive. People, people give you a space, you know, say, I want to have a meeting. Oh, you can use our spot, you know? So we've gotten a lot of support. You are specifically empowered to create the recovery space that you desire. Hey, love that. Love it. Love it. So more on Facebook groups, do you want to go into other groups or do you want to just stick with the Sobar? No, sure. So Sobar Basics is still out there on Facebook. It's short for Sober Bartender. And Basics is an acronym for Bartender and Service Industry Community Support. It's a multiple pathways group. So you can get a lot of support on there. You can share what you're struggling with. You can share um, milestones in recovery and sobriety. It's not specifically any one type of group, right? Mm-hmm. Um, also, uh, we have Recovery Dharma Plano, Texas. That's a Facebook group. So if you like to learn more about Recovery Dharma, you can join that group, even if you don't live there. 
We have Recovery Dharma Dallas, which is another group specifically tied to our group. So we have Dallas and we have Plano. We're one group. So uh, we call our Sangha One Song Sangha. Uh, Sangha is a group of wise friends on the path, right? Um, so we don't have sponsors. We have wise friends and mentors um, that can either be one person or a group of people. So those are two groups you can check out. Um, websites for those are uh, recoverydharma.org. Um, we were talking about smart recovery. You can go to smartrecovery.org um, as well if you're looking for that. Both of those websites actually have um, where you can find a meeting either in person or it'll give you links to meetings all across the world. So no matter where you're at, 24 hours a day, you can find a meeting that you're interested in too. And so there's, yeah, there's a lot of them. My buddy Dan started Knucklehead Recovery. So he is a knucklehead and he wanted something that was more like geared towards like bikers and hot rod enthusiasts. And so he started that, you know, it's like whatever you want. Um, Of course, there's lots of 12-step Facebook groups. My experience with a lot of those have been that they're a bit shaming, right? They're they're not very supportive. And that's kind of why I started Sobar. People are really mean to each other. So if 12-step recovery is your jam, start one that just doesn't let people be assholes on there. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) That's my, that was my big rule for Sobar. Just don't come in that group and be a dick. Because uh, we'll ban you and block you and delete you. And that's the thing. Because when sometimes whatever you create, whether it's a group in person, whether it's a Facebook group, whatever, it might be people's first introduction to recovery. And you want that to be a positive and nurturing place and experience for them. Because if they, the first thing they do is log on to your group and they say people are shaming each other, making fun of each other, discounting each other, they're like, oh, this recovery thing might not be for me. Um, so we all are representative, representatives of recovery or our recovery pathway. And be mindful of that when you're posting, uh, when you're being sarcastic, when you're throwing up memes that shame the community that you're a part of. Because you might think it's funny, but your friends might think it's funny, but Somebody else who's still use, you know, who's using Suboxone or they're, they're still using heroin or still using cocaine and you're posting recovery memes that are shaming our community. That can be really detrimental. That can cause a big ripple effect. And one of the things I think we all share is kind of the mantra of do no harm. And it doesn't matter that you don't intend to do harm. Are you doing harm? Right. And I know we don't have control over all of that. But just be mindful of it because I see a lot of really kind individuals doing some really unkind things. And if you know better, do better. I love it. Dusty, you brought so much helpful information. I'm going to include all of your links and where people can access a lot of that information in the show notes. And thank you so much for coming and talking to us. It was my pleasure. Thanks for reaching out. And uh, I'd love for you guys to come up here to DFW and visit Hopefully I can make it down there to Padre Island soon. Yeah, yeah. There's a recovery dharma here in Corpus Christi. It's only been a month or two, um, but I have, I've been seeking that out whenever I can. That's Sunday nights at 7 p.m. over on uh, Santa Fe. It's the Chapel of Spiritual Light. So you can always reach out to me if you're interested in checking out recovery dharma and Corpus Christi as well. I'd love that. Can I do a quick shout out real quick? Yeah, please. So, of course, I want to um, shout out to Sessions Wellness Group. That's where I do private practice. You can uh, get more information on that at sessionswellnessgroup.com. 
Also, if you're interested in ketamine therapy and you want more information about that, you can check that out at neuroglow.com. And if you ever need services in the Fannin, Cook, or Grayson counties, um, we help people with low income, veterans, anybody with substance use disorder, OBOT program, you can check out our services at texomacc.org. And if you just want to reach out to me directly about any questions or referrals, if you need to get into treatment or detox, I'd be happy to help you free of charge. Just reach out to me at uh, dustyburrows at gmail.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dusty. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day. Hell yeah. Okay, guys. That was a lot of information. I know I got a lot out of that. I do have a lot of questions as I start to open myself up to more pathways. You know, AA, like I said, the 12 steps have absolutely saved my life. And now at a little over two years sober, I am open to exploring more options. And in doing so, I'm able to bring more to you. So you know, in this episode, I just want to go back over educating yourself. If you're struggling, um, there are people that you can reach out to. If there's one pathway that, you know, doesn't seem a fit for you, definitely, you know, get on your computer, like educate yourself on your options because you're not limited to just what you know. There's more out there. Um, and advocacy, even if this isn't your thing, I know a lot of people listen to this podcast that are not in recovery or are not, they're not actively, you know, battling addiction or alcoholism, um, but definitely still, you know, advocating, sharing these talks, um, you know, sharing resources, you know, you may come across someone who needs the information that we're providing. And so just you knowing someone that knows a way is, is capable of really impacting and even saving lives and uh, reducing the stigma that's something that I really want to bring home also is there are, there are a lot of ideas about what's right and what's wrong. And there is no one right way to recover. So as people explore these different avenues, I think it's good to open our hearts and our mind and just know that it doesn't matter what way you go as long as you find something because people are dying. We're losing people that could potentially have a chance at life. So judgment is not helpful. Closed-minded thinking is not helpful. So, you know, if one way doesn't work, being open to another way uh, could make the difference in somebody's life. If you're struggling, please reach out. Um, in the show notes of this show, I am including Dusty's contact information as well as some different websites and some different articles. And you can always reach out to me. There's a Facebook group, The Sober Bartender, and then Brandy Kelly on Facebook. On Instagram, you can uh, message me at The Sober Bartender Podcast. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm here, and I'm here to help. And there's a lot of other people like me. And if I can't help, I might know somebody who can. So just, just keep going and know that you matter. Like, there are people here who... I'm really glad that you exist. And it's really hard to see that when you're in a funk and a fog. So, you know, just just hang on and, and reach out. And you're going to get through this. 
There was a time in my life where I didn't know that I was going to get through anything. I didn't know how I was going to get through a day and I didn't see, I didn't see the possibility for another way. And I'm so glad I hung on. So thank you for listening. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, follow, rate, and review. That helps carry the message. That helps get get these talks to the people that need to hear them. And uh, until next time, hi, Mom. I love you.